Meditation could be called science of the mind and as such it has to have repeatable results which it has. Only when results are repeatable does it become a science and we have exactly that. And not only that its only feature which makes it a science it also happens in exactly the same way in all human minds that meditate although people have different ways of expressing it and yet it always happens in the same way and therefore it can be taught if it was different for each person what happens there would be no way one could teach meditation and therefore it can be learned because it is repeatable teachable and the same for every person now that doesn't mean that everyone here now has exactly the same experiences because this is only the beginning it also doesn't mean that everybody needs the same method that's why there are so many methods because methods can be adaptable to a person's character, environment, background, wishes, hopes and so on once we have got past the method then the step-by-step -step progression becomes exact and identical even though people who haven't been taught or haven't had any guidance and come to it through good luck and good karma may think and often do that it's a personal and very individual experience as a matter of fact all our problems and also our, our difficulties and also all our ha happenings which are desirable they're all very similar we don't have a monopoly on any of it we live together we suffer together and we also have the ability to get out of that suffering together the same way because the optical illusion of separation exists now obviously they are sitting 50 different heaps here in this hall we have the idea that each one of us is a separate entity In reality, there's no such thing. I often quote and will do so again, our scientists who decades ago became aware through experiments of the fact that there isn't a single solid building block in the whole of the universe. There are nothing but energy particles coming together and falling apart. 
And if those scientists who found this out and made the experiments in what's called the bubble chamber, if they had included themselves in that result, they might have become enlightened. But they were the observers. They were not the participants. As meditators, we can become the participants. And when we do, through our meditation experience, and when we do, it doesn't only become wishful thinking and hopeful feelings that we are all one, which is so often mentioned, that we're in this together, that this is a family of mankind, that we all are exactly the same, but we may actually experience and feel it. And of course then, nobody needs to prove anything. That is the old simile of having to bite into the mango in order to find out what it tastes like. What we haven't experienced does not become reality for us. It only becomes a thought, a wish, a hope, and an idea. But the reality lies in our experience. We can read about, we can hear about, we can watch what it's like to have a baby, but if we haven't had one, we don't know what it's like. It's the same with meditation. It's the same with that unity. It really does exist. It's really experiential possible, but we have to do it. Now what we've been doing here so far is trying to find each one of us a suitable method in order to get the mind to stop chattering. Most of the time, what the mind is chattering about is not even interesting. Sometimes it is, and then we get caught in it. And other times, it may appear to be as if it has some value, and then again we get caught in it. But most of the time, it's just chattering. So we need a method in order to stop that, and that's what we're trying to do. But when we have stopped it long enough from giving its commentaries and sub-commentaries and explanations and dislikes and rejections, when we've stopped it for a certain length of time, we may actually begin to meditate. And that's what I'm going to talk about to first of all show you the benefit of it so that it may induce some of you to keep going. Also to show you the pragmatic and totally realistic experience which doesn't need to have any mystical or mysterious explanations about it. So that you can see that it is available for every human mind that sits down long enough, determined enough. And if you remember the story I told you about the different horses that we are like, those that have to be 
uh, can only listen when a whip is used or the spurs or some of them can actually listen when just the reins are used very often we do need that whip however it's possible to spur oneself on it doesn't have to be an outside experience and the only way to do that is what I've already talked about to see Dukkha for what it is it's not possible to alleviate it through worldly measures it just comes back now what I've talked about so far the Dukkha aspect the mindfulness aspect these are all ways to gain insight and I've shown you some ways of using the meditation also just insight practices however insight is the goal calm is the means we don't get to the goal without the means now calm is not a goal in itself but it is the necessary means without it it doesn't happen and I've already given you that simile of the ocean wave when the mind does that obviously we can't see anything so trying to stay on the breath is the method and this method can be likened to using a key the breath is the key now what do we want to do with a key we don't want to play around with a key for the rest of our lives we want to find the keyhole and we want to unlock the door the door is the door to a mansion that has eight chambers now how do you unlock a door how do you get a key in the keyhole just think for a moment when you get home you've got your key in your hand you've got to hold it steady it's no use waving about with that key same with the mind it's got to be kept steady and you've got to keep it steady long enough to fit it into that keyhole once you've got it in there you unlock the door and step inside the house you don't have to fumble with the key anymore in fact if one does it long enough and often enough one doesn't need a key anymore because the door stays open this is one door which we can keep open without any danger of robbers coming in nobody can take the inner calm away once it's established however first we have to be able to open this door now there are five factors of meditation which counteract five hindrances five hindrances which every single human being has and if you haven't found one or two of them inside of you yet you just haven't looked closely enough we've all got them 
Now some of those hindrances, of those five, we have stronger tendencies for and others lesser tendencies. So the ones we have a strong tendency for we probably know about. Maybe the lesser one we haven't noticed yet. But we've all got them. They are part and parcel of a human being. And because we have them, that's why we have problems. And because we have problems, that's why the world looks the way it does. The only thing that we do wrong in that aspect is that we're surprised when a war breaks out. There's nothing to be surprised about. That's exactly what happens inside of us. We're surprised when somebody is unkind, unfriendly, angry, upset, worried, or fearful. We just haven't looked closely enough that that is part and parcel of being a human being. The five factors of the meditation are automatic antidotes for our hindrances. Now obviously, as I've already mentioned before, we also have to work against these hindrances in our daily living. But without this automatic clearing system, it's very difficult and well nigh impossible to really make some advance, to really see that these hindrances are diminishing. But with the meditation, it's not so difficult. Now the first one of the five factors I've already mentioned as an immediate benefit of meditation, namely the initial application of the mind to the meditation subject in Pali Vitaka. The initial application of the mind to the meditation subject counteracts our inherent sloth and torpor, laziness and drowsiness, and you all know that when you sit down and you have the best intention of putting your mind on the breath and the mind becomes drowsy, nothing happens. So the Buddha compares this hindrance with being in prison. We are imprisoned by our own drowsiness our own sloth and torpor. We can't do anything. One sits there like a lump and one has neither the restfulness of a good night's sleep nor the energy of an attentive mind. One gets nothing. The application to the meditation subject over and over again is the antidote of the meditative path. The antidote in daily living is learning more about the Dhamma and having more understanding of the pitfalls and the 
results which we get from this particular hindrance. The Buddha compared it to a water pond which was so muddy that we couldn't see our likeness. If there's mud in the water pond, there's no way we could mirror ourselves in it. When we are drowsy, it feels muddy or foggy. There's no clarity at all. Being imprisoned by it creates procrastination and lack of enthusiasm. And because it has no energy in it, the mind has no energy in it, it has a feeling of like a run-down clock. Somebody's got to wind it again. I'm sure some of you will recognize the symptoms. Everybody's got the same symptoms. Now, how do we wind this clock up again? By again and again putting the attention on the meditation subject. That's all it is. Again and again. So what do we need? We need perseverance, patience, determination, and an understanding, enough insight to know that if we want to be our own best friend, that's what we'll have to do. That takes investigation. Now this is our first step into meditation and an immediate benefit and doesn't require anything yet except good intentions. The next step is continued application to the meditation subject in Pali Vichara. These two are usually called, mentioned together, Vitaka Vichara, but they are two separate mind states. The second one now begins to be meditation. Continued application to the meditation subject means we can actually stay on the breath or whatever subject we have chosen. We're actually there and remain with it. That counteracts our fifth hindrance, skeptical doubt. Skeptical doubt is the one that whispers in our ear and says, there must be an easier way. Maybe I should have tried Tai Chi. <laughs> <laughs> or, how do I know that this is really so? Who can, who can prove this to me? Or all the many ideas that we have in the mind of trying this and that, especially when it isn't so easy to do. A skeptical doubt is compared by the Buddha to wandering around in the desert without a road map, without any provisions, and being overrun by bandits, because one goes around in circles without any road map in the desert. The water pond is compared to one which is covered in 
water plants so that one can't see one's likeness. Skeptical doubt has many aspects. One is the doubt about the fact that was the Buddha really enlightened and what does enlightenment really mean? Is it really something nice? Why should I try for that? Or those people who have heard about anatta, the non-self, saying, what am I sitting here for when I don't even exist? <laughs> Believe me, I've heard them all. <laughs> and Dhamma, the, the teaching of the Buddha, well, maybe that's uh, Asiatic. Maybe we don't need that in Australia. Or the Sangha, what is that? Sangha is that everybody who sits down with their legs crossed and why should I have any faith in that? But that's not so bad. The most insidious skeptical doubt is in one's own abilities. That's far worse. Namely, the doubt in one's own ability to be able to become concentrated. As one sits there and the mind goes berserk and think, 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 it eventually says, well, I can't do this. Impossible. No use trying. Now that is doubt in oneself. And that doubt in oneself, of course, makes one stop. Me saying that everybody can do it won't counteract that. Because one hasn't bitten into the mango oneself. One's just listening to somebody describing the taste of the mango. It's not good enough. So when the mind can actually stay on the breath, that's when that doubt disappears. Then the mind says, oh, I did it. Gee, that was nice. Oh, I better do it again. And that confidence arises that it is actually possible to become concentrated, stop thinking, feel a little peaceful. Now that's the second step and it's got to come eventually. Mind you, some people take a long time. Mostly I think because they haven't had any guidance. Some people can do it surprisingly quick. Those are the lucky ones. Most people need a fair bit of time. But it's possible for anyone to do it. So this antidote for skeptical doubt also helps one to gain confidence in the teaching of the Buddha because obviously the Buddha said, well, look, it's possible. Sit down and watch the breath and it's possible to become concentrated. And there we are able to prove it to ourselves. So the mind says, well, if that's correct, maybe the other stuff's right too. Maybe I'll give it a go. Many of the things that the Buddha taught, in fact all of them, go against our ego support system. And therefore, Doubt arises automatically because the ego doesn't like that. But if we have been able to prove at least one thing already, doubt is not so strong anymore.
This is also why I suggested to you, and I hope you've all done it, to look at anything in your life that is creating some unhappiness for you. And if it's only a matter of worry over a slight thing or fear of something or an unfulfilled desire, and recognize the anxiety it creates, the restlessness it creates, and drop that desire for a moment to have it otherwise than it is. And experience the peace that comes from dropping the desire. Because having done that, you've proven the first and second noble truth correct. Why is it important? I mean, your desire is going to come back anyway after one minute or two. But why is it important to do that? Because the Buddhist explanation of how meditation can start to work includes the fact that only if we gain confidence in the teaching will enough joy arise in the heart to make the mind pliable enough to meditate properly. You see, meditation cannot stand alone. Meditation is not something that we can create out of nothing. All of a sudden have a meditative mind, as you have undoubtedly found out, and then have it stand in by itself. It has to be embedded in spirituality, which contains so many other things. Primarily, it contains an understanding of ourselves and therefore mindfulness. It contains a moral background. And with all that, we need a spiritual path to bolster the meditative endeavor. Only when we have gained confidence that this path is correct for us, not for anybody else, for us ourselves, will that inner joy arise which gives that enough energy to the mind to actually do it and do it well. And this is one of the difficulties which we encounter when we try to do meditation totally separated from a whole spiritual system. The Buddhist spiritual path does not require faith in anything. It requires confidence. And the way the Buddha described confidence he said it is a union of faith and wisdom. And he compared faith to a blind giant and wisdom to a sharp-eyed cripple. 
And the blind giant called Faith says to the sharp-eyed cripple, Look, I am very strong, but I can't see anything. And you are quite weak, but you've got sharp eyes. Come and ride on my shoulders. Together we'll go far. We know that blind faith can move mountains, but unfortunately, being blind, it doesn't know which mountain needs moving. And therefore, it has to be a union of faith and wisdom, which then spells confidence. Wisdom is our own. We've got to see what there is. Wisdom arises within when we hear something that we can relate to from our own experience and understand it to be the truth. That is one of the prerequisites for meditation because it effectively counteracts skeptical doubt in our makeup. And it gives us a basis on which to be firm and on which to be solidly grounded. In order to meditate properly, we've got to be solidly grounded with everything. Only the one who is solidly grounded in a spiritual understanding and a spiritual path has enough springboard there on that solid ground to fly high. Everything else is bound to fall flat again. So our second step, vichara, continued application, gives us this help against the skeptical doubt. And also, if we have already seen that dropping the czar eliminates our unhappiness even just for that moment. Those are two ways of proving to ourselves that this is a true um, instruction. Now then, meditation starts. Now we come to meditation. Up to now, up to this point, it's nothing but method and practice, training. Now, in order to do anything well, of course, we have to practice and train. But if we have practiced and trained long enough, we must finally be able to do something with it. So, having been able on, to be on the breath for a certain length of time, and it's quite impossible to say for how long, and it's totally immaterial whether we actually use the breath or anything else, whether we use a word with it, whether we use feelings, whether we use pictures, it doesn't matter at all. And the length of time to be on it doesn't matter either. It has to be, of course, more than a minute or two. We have to be able to stay with it. Then what happens is that the breath becomes finer and finer. 
because the mind has become also finer and finer. And becoming finer and finer, it may be difficult to find. And many people then, without instruction, take a deep breath so that they can find the breath again and also because they're coming afraid that they're stopping to breathe. And of course the whole thing has to start all over again. <coughs> when it's difficult to find or not possible to find it at all, at that moment the mind has become calm enough and has been long enough without the overlay of the thoughts so that it can touch upon its own purity. We all carry that within us. We all carry that what we're looking for in life right within our own heart and mind. And people go, all of us probably have already, go around the world up into the highest mountains, down into the deepest oceans, and yet we carry it right in our own heart and mind. Having been able to stop the mind from covering this over with its thinking process, we can uh, uh, finally touch upon it. And what happens is that there is an extremely pleasant sensation. Now in Pali that's called piti, P-I-T-I, translated very often as bliss, a very unsatisfactory translation because the word bliss conjures up a mental state. This is actually a physical state. And we could call it, it's called rapture, which is physical, and that is more correct. It can be called delight, which also conjures up a mental state, but it is actually a physical feeling. PT is also translated as interest, because now finally interest in meditation really gets a hold of one and one is going to continue. Mind you, that too is not a guarantee. I have met up with meditators who got that far and still stopped. But more of them continue, because interest really arises now. These are physical feelings, physical sensations, of which there are mentioned in the book, in the Visuddhimagga, 17 different kinds. There are far more, of course, but the 17 are the most common ones. I'll just mention a few. For the benefit of those who may actually have already experienced it, and for the benefit of those who are going to continue their meditation and may experience it, and at least know what to do with that. It can be a feeling of lightness, physical lightness as opposed to, opposed to heaviness. Floating, tingling, a feeling of the hair on the body standing on end, a feeling of being pulled up straight, a feeling of actually leaving the the cushion and being a little bit elevated and many others. It's very easy to recognize because it's quite different from what we usually experience and it's so utterly pleasant 
that nobody needs to tell us that this is really nice now, that's it. What usually happens is when it appears for the first time, the mind reacts with, oh, what was that? Gee, that was nice. Where'd it go? <laughs> Gone, of course, because the mind wasn't able to stay with it, disappeared. So one's got to do it again. It's a very typical first reaction, but as one practices and does it, it's um, just knowing that it is the beginning of meditation. When one becomes practiced at it, one sits down on the pillow and one doesn't need the key, one doesn't need the breath. It just arises. One can use the breath, it doesn't matter. Now this has a very strong influence upon one's life. It is an automatic antidote for, or against I should say, anger, ill will, our second hindrance. Everybody knows what that feels like. Unpleasant to say the least. The Buddha compares it to a bilious disease. The bile comes up. He also compares anger to picking up hot coals with one's bare hands and trying to throw them at somebody else. Even if we should hit the target, we get burned first. Now this very pleasant sensation that we can sit in in meditation, of course, does not allow for any ill will to arise during the meditation. But it does far more than that. It has a residue in the mind. The residue being the knowledge that one can get back to that when one sits down in meditation. That knowledge is like knowing that we have a home to go to when we come from work. Imagine you work all day and then you don't have a home to go to. You have to stay on the street, be exposed to all the unpleasantness of inclement weather. Well, obviously, the mind wouldn't be at ease about that. Now, we all have a home to go to after the day's work, where the body feels very comfortable, has a nice easy chair, has a nice bed, has a nice bathroom. What about the mind? Does it feel very comfortable, very at ease, doesn't get upset, worried, angry, doesn't argue? Not at all. It's just as uncomfortable as it's always been although the body has a very nice home. This is a home for the mind. The mind doesn't need a house. The mind needs a home in the heart and the mind. And as it gets that, it knows that it can rest within its own purity, where it doesn't have to fear and worry. So even during the day, when it can't, obviously can't meditate because there are other things to do. And um, 
it's not possible to say my whole day is meditation it just isn't we can be mindful all day but it's impossible to meditate all day because there are many other things one has to do but even then as we're doing these other things we're fully aware of the fact that in the evening the mind can go home and have that comfort and that pleasure of being aware of its own purity and therefore the things that happen during the day do not have such an impact neither the pleasant nor the unpleasant the pleasant do not become such a cause for desire as they were before nor do the unpleasant ones become such a cause for rejection and resistance and anger and fear and worry as they were before because we know very well all we have to do is sit down and go inside and all is fine this is a residue which helps us to counteract anger in daily living without even having to go to the measures which the Buddha prescribes. As far as the meditation is concerned, when we've got this far, it is essential that when it stops, either the time is up or the concentration stops, that we watch the dissolution of this pleasant feeling because it's very nice when our unpleasant feelings stop we're quite happy about impermanence then but when the pleasant things stop impermanence is something we don't really appreciate therefore we have to watch the pleasantness of this feeling disperse and dissolve it can't do anything else it still has a residue of knowing we can go back there from a practical standpoint if we get to that state which is a very first step into meditation which is so to say the first chamber in that mansion of eight chambers we need to first see the impermanence and then recapitulate how did I meditate today this time so that I got there this recapitulation is of the utmost importance so that it does not remain hit or miss but becomes the meditative path the recapitulation should include everything that we can remember about this particular meditation session did I think differently when I came to the meditation pillow did I eat differently beforehand not eat at all or eat less or what what did I do didn't drink coffee or did drink coffee whatever it may be did I do exercises or not do exercises had I slept well or was I up for a long time how did I feel when I sat down on the pillow and then when I sat down how did I start my meditation what do I think was the trigger to get me concentrated everybody has to eventually find their own trigger that is individual although there aren't that many different ones it's still individual 
the following steps are all universal but the trigger is individual and everybody will eventually have to find one which brings one to the concentrated state having done it many times one doesn't need the trigger anymore because the mind is habituated just as the mind is at this point in time habituated to discursive thinking and does it happily and continuously so it becomes habituated to doing the opposite also it's a mind habit and we can change our habits now because we've had this habit of discursive thinking for so long not just this lifetime many lifetimes it's not so easy to shift but it is possible now we have this antidote for anger anger being compared by the Buddha to a water pond where the wind is blowing so hard that there are huge waves again we can't see our likeness when we get angry all we see is anger and we know that it's unpleasant and we try to justify it he or she is so terrible that one has to get angry there is no justification for anger anger is an emotion which hurts the one who's angry whether it's going to hurt the other one at whom one is angry is a mute question maybe that other one has already practiced long enough to know how to duck so it may not be possible to hit that other person with those hot coals but whatever it may be the one who's angry is the one who gets hurt because first of all we use our mind in a way which is hurtful to it if you can think of your heart and mind as the greatest jewel that exists the most valuable one there is in the whole of the universe now if you had a thing like that in your hand you'd certainly look after it you'd keep it clean so that it could sparkle and you could enjoy its brilliance you would take care that it wouldn't get scratched and you'd look after it so that it doesn't have any dents put into it that is heart and mind and we don't look after it like that at all we allow it to get dirtied and scratched dents put into it and anger is just that anger is the one that scratches and puts dents into our mind in the worst way and then to repair that takes time you know how it is if you got angry at another person it's very difficult to repair that friendship sometimes it's impossible or to repair that relationship sometimes we can't manage because anger hurts and we're hurting our own mind by doing that so that's one consideration we should always remember that we are the one that is getting hurt anger has of course the antidote of 
loving-kindness. And the Buddha prescribed the loving-kindness meditation and the loving-kindness action against anger, which is apart from the loving-kindness action, it's apart from our meditative path, but is our daily activity. And there we have to come to terms with how we understand loving-kindness or love. If we understand it as a feeling which has to be reciprocated or a feeling which we can only conjure up if there's somebody who is attractive or lovable or would like to love us back, then we have no idea what love is. We're using it as a barter emotion and that's not love. That can be called possibly affection and attachment and that is the near enemy of love. Of course, the far enemy is hate. When we understand that love is the cultivation of our own heart, then we get nearer to the truth. It has nothing to do whether anybody is lovable. It has nothing to do whether the love is going to be reciprocated, whether anybody wants to be loved, it's worth loving. It's got nothing to do even with the fact whether anybody's there. Our intelligence in the mind doesn't stop when we don't have to have, when we don't have to solve equations. The mind remains just as intelligent as before. If we have a loving heart, that doesn't stop just because there doesn't happen to be somebody there that we can voice it to. A loving heart is an insurance policy against pain, grief, and lamentation. There is no other. Whether other people love us or not is totally immaterial because that's their insurance policy. They have bought an insurance policy for love in the heart. The only one we can get is when we have love in our heart. The only way we can live together is when we love each other. If you have a family where people don't love each other, they can't live together. They split apart. If you work in an office where there's nothing but stress and tension, one usually has to leave after a while. If we live in a community where people don't love each other, it's impossible. One can't stand it after a while. On this little planet of ours, tiny little thing hurtling through space, People just don't love each other. And that's why we have the misery that we experience. Not only now, but since mankind has had records that we can look into. The misery that we experience on this planet is the same misery that we experience in our own hearts. It's no different. A meditator can and must learn it. 
must learn the cultivation of the heart. Meditation has three foundations on which it rests. Dana sila metta, generosity, moral conduct, and love. We have to develop these qualities so that the mind has no regrets, no feelings of guilt, no remorse, but is happy about itself. And then it can stop thinking. It doesn't have to plan a thing. It's already done what it had planned. So love is a quality of the heart and not an affirmation of somebody's qualities. To use it as an affirmation of somebody else's qualities is absurd. Because what we do then, if we stay with one or two or three people out of four billion, and if that one, two or three people disappear through some mishap, because either they change their mind or die or go somewhere else, then love is gone. That quality in our heart, which is the most important one, has disappeared with one or two or three people. Total absurdity, but that's the way it's worked. The only thing that's worth doing is cultivating the warmth and care for others, giving with generosity that warmth and care and concern to other people because the more of that we give away, the more we've got. If we see a beggar and would like to give him some money because we feel inclined that way, but we haven't got any, we haven't earned any, there's no way we can give it. The best intention doesn't work. So here, we generate within us and cultivate the loving heart. Then we can give it. We generate it and cultivate it by recognizing every time it doesn't arise in response to other people or even in response to situations. When there is negativity, Watch the negativity. Now that is the fourth foundation of mindfulness, the content of thought. And watching that, we substitute, which is what we've learned in meditation, substituting our thoughts with attention on the breath. Here we use it to substitute the negative reaction with a loving one over and over again until it becomes second nature until it becomes habit until it becomes the only way the heart will respond this is the kind of work which doesn't get paid in dollars and cents but brings the greatest profit to the one who does it and on top of that it also has the 
faculty of imbuing the people around us with more lovingness, with more happiness. So it doesn't only, the result doesn't only stay with us ourselves, it goes to people around us. Whether we want to or not has nothing to do with that. It's automatic. We don't need to say a word. We don't even have to do anything. We can feel it. And that feeling is what we need in order to live together. And the more people there are on this planet, and there are more and more everywhere, and the nearer we get to each other through our technology, the more we need it. The more we crowd together, the more love is necessary. When we're way apart somewhere in the desert all by ourselves, it doesn't matter so much. It's not a matter of survival then. We can survive by ourselves. But as we are close together and all live together, it's a matter of survival. This is the kind of work that we can do in everyday life again and again, but without the support system of the meditation, it's extremely difficult. And it remains usually a wish and a hope, and a, it doesn't only remain that, there's also some elimination of anger and hate, certainly, but it is dependent upon the fact that the outer situations are conducive to having no anger or hate. In other words, one remains dependent upon outer situations. When they become stressful and tense, difficult, when there may be abuse or blame leveled at oneself, then the loving and the compassion are very difficult to arouse. Have we, however, been able to get through the meditation a state where it becomes far easier for us to arouse it? We do not depend upon the outer condition so much. We may still have some reaction, but far less. The outer condition is no longer the main source of our difficulty because the inner condition has changed so much. I have talked about three hindrances and three antidotes. That's enough for this evening. If there's time, I'll tell you the other two tomorrow. But these are, in any case, the beginning ones, the first ones, the most important ones, and those that make all the difference. Now you can ask some questions if you like. And would somebody turn the light on? Because if you do raise your hand, I wouldn't be able to see it. <laughs> Thank you.
That's enough. Um, yeah, one maybe. It's terribly bright. Is there something else? <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's all right. One gets used to anything. Hmm? All right. If you have any questions, please ask. Yes. That danger does not exist if you have learned to substitute. That's what we're learning. I, I just mentioned it, um, that we learn it in meditation and therefore we can also do the same thing in daily living. You can only substitute when you have recognized. First the recognition. Formula, recognition, no blame, change. First you recognize and then you can substitute. So that's the substitution aspect of it. So it has to first be completely there. Anything else? You did mention this morning that you talked about the other three ways of developing mindfulness. Yes, well, <laughs> it's too much. Um, I just, I mentioned the fourth one briefly this evening. It's a content of thought. I'll give you the names of them. The second one is mindfulness of feeling. Third one is mindfulness of mental states. And the fourth one is the mindfulness of the content of the thought. And I mentioned that briefly when I said that it is important to know what our thought contains so that we can substitute with something wholesome but I won't be able to explain them in detail at this point. It would take too long. Anything else? Yes? Are your books dealing with the content of your lectures? Yes. Uh, I can say with confidence that my books deal with them. <laughs> yes, I have no idea what other books deal with. Yes. Um, I have a new one coming out by Penguin. It's coming out in March. It's called When the Iron Eagle Flies. And it deals with, well, it has that what I've just talked about in it. I remember that much. And um, it has the lectures of a 10-day course in it. So there's far more in it than what I'm saying here. It's a penguin, when the iron eagle flies. There's uh, one here, it's, well, I don't know if it's still there, it probably isn't, 
being nobody going nowhere <coughs> by wisdom, brought out by wisdom, that contains the lectures of a 10-day course, but it's 1984, and this one that I'm mentioning by Penguin are the lectures from 1989, I think, and there should be a, hopefully, a marked difference. <laughs> Yes. I'm not sure that I'm going to read a long time of meditation properly because it seems to divide into two different feelings. The feeling of relating love is one feeling, but when you get to a person, then it, then it becomes, um, uh, I suppose it's more tender, so it becomes slightly sorrowful when you actually get to a person, ah. does it have compassion in it? Yes, it's, it's the compassion that makes it aware of the frailties. I think so you mm. have a bad quality. Yes, but being aware of the frailty and the difficulty of people, um, that arouses compassion, certainly, but it should not, and actually does not, include... Um, sadness because sadness only arises if we don't like the frailty and the difficulty of the human condition if we accept it that's the way it is compassion right so have a look and see whether you don't like it the way it is and when we accept it that's a moment when we re realize that there's only one thing to do, and that is to transcend. And that's when we start practicing. Anything else? Yes? You were saying before about when you have reactions like anger or, or whatever, uh, the importance of substituting, which I agree. And I also find that looking at those reactions, it seems very spiritual to me because, first of all, there's a learning. It's almost like that's what's presented for you to, to look at and to learn from. But also it seems to me that, that there's a lot of opportunity for the, for the other person or whatever the trigger is to, and I don't mean to react out of that particular emotion, but to actually share that with that person. And... I feel there's a real opportunity for the person, for the work situation, for mm. the world. But I think it's, it's done in a mindful way. You think that the sharing is the important part? Yes, I think that's an aspect of it. I, it I'm can be. It can be. It doesn't have to be. Not everybody likes to share. No, I realise that. <laughs> but it's surprising a potential opportunity. Not necessarily. Um, we're born alone, we die alone. Our spiritual path is essentially one that we do alone. We have the Buddha and his disciples to thank that he has given us a direct guideline telling us how to do it. I don't believe, at least to my knowledge, that there's any other path which is so exact in the how-to 
They all want you to go the same way, but the how-to is exact. Now, if you have someone, happen to have someone, that you can actually share with your own difficulties without feeling that the person may feel uh, blaming or take advantage of that, that's wonderful. Most people don't have that. The spiritual path is just as much alone as everything else actually is in this life. The other person is a support system for what? For the ego. That's all it is. Now, if we have a noble friend, that is a great boon. But a noble friend means, in this terminology, means a person who has the same ambition, let's say, of a spiritual growth, the same idea of spiritual growth, and hopefully has already taken one step further than oneself. That is called a noble friend. Now, sometimes we can be that noble friend, and other times we look for that noble friend. But if we have it, we're very lucky. If we don't, it doesn't matter. It's a very, very wonderful situation if one has such a noble friend. And this is something that I actually should mention and didn't mention earlier, that the antidote for all our hindrances, which is common to all, now you see that they all have different antidotes, but they have one antidote, which is common to all five. And that's noble friends and noble conversation. And that's exactly what is meant by that noble friend, namely a person that is also on a spiritual path, but one step ahead of us, and can show us where we're going to fall and where we can climb. And the noble conversation is a conversation about such things that are uplifting and are giving us a feeling that there's more to life than just materiality. There's more to life than just the um, marketplace. <clears throat> so while you're quite right that a noble friend would be a great boon, many people have to do without it. And it should not be a deprivation because essentially the path is one that we go alone. So it's be great if we have one. In Pali, the noble friend is called the Kalyanamitta. And the Kalyanamitta is supposed to be the meditation teacher. Now, one doesn't always have one. But if one finds one that one can have as a friend, that doesn't mean that one now has to be seated right next to that noble friend and stay there. Usually, what happened in the Buddha's time, and still does today, for those who take this path seriously, that one does one's work and then checks back with the noble friend as often as possible to see whether one has done it correctly. And that is the function of a meditation teacher. The function is not to be constantly with one, because the work is one's own. But the confirmation 
of whether one is doing it right is very important. It's something that is such a great help because the confidence then makes it possible to go further. See, your question triggered quite a lot of information. <laughs> Anything else? Please put the attention on the breath for just a moment. Look into your heart and see whether there's any worry, fear, desire, envy, jealousy, sadness, anger, dislike, rejection, resistance, pride. If you find any of that or any other negative emotion, let it fly away like black clouds dispersed through the wind. And then look into your heart again and find the open spaciousness swept clean of all negative emotion. Fill that open spaciousness of your heart with love and compassion to overflowing so that you're filled from head to toe with love and surrounded by compassion. being like a vessel that contains only that. Now put your attention on the person nearest you in this hall. And from the fullness of your heart, fill him or her with your compassion for all the difficulties that every human being has and embrace him or her with your love as a gift from you.
And now let your love and compassion reach out to everyone here. Fill everyone from head to toe with your compassion, recognizing the difficulties we all have, being caring and concerned, and embrace everyone with your love. giving the warmth from your heart. Now think of your parents. Fill them with your compassion, recognizing their difficulties. Embrace them with your love, giving them the best your heart can offer. Think of the people who are nearest and dearest to you. Let compassion well up from your heart. Fill their hearts with it. Knowing their difficulties, embrace them with your love. Without expecting the same in return. Think of all your good friends. Let them arise before your mind's eye. Give them the gift of your compassion and your love. Fill them and surround them with them. Without expecting the same in return.
think of all the people who make up your life neighbors, people at work people you meet here and there on your travels think of all those people who have come into your life embrace them with love fill them with compassion knowing that that's the only way we can live together in peace make them a real part of your heart think of anyone whom you don't like very much or whom you might be angry at or with whom you have some sort of difficulty and recognize that person as your teacher in love and compassion be grateful and don't allow your heart to close up towards that person Give out with love and compassion to him or her also. Forgiving and forgetting. Embrace that person. Now think of all the people whose lives are far more difficult than ours. In hospital, in prison, in refugee camps, prisoner of war, engaged in a war, hungry, without shelter, blind, without friends, Let love and compassion well up in your heart towards all these people, embracing them, hugging them to you, wanting to help, caring and concerned. Whoever they are, wherever they are,
Now put your attention back on yourself. And be filled with compassion for yourself. And embrace yourself with love. Feeling the warmth and the protection of that love and the acceptance and the caring of the compassion. Be totally filled and surrounded with these, leaving no room for anything else. May we all have love and compassion for each other. <laughs>